listening to a recent sermon from a Covenant Church worship experience. For more information or other sermons like this one, you can find us at covenantchurch.us. And now with a message from our latest series, here is our lead pastor, Pastor Travis Davenport. It's good to be with you on this beautiful day. Hey, we're starting a brand new series today entitled Philippians, a book study. And we're going to be working through uh, the entire book of Philippians today. We're in chapter 1. And as I read to you earlier, this passage uh, from Philippians chapter 1, 20 and 21, um, so a couple things I want you to be aware of. So right now in this moment, I want you to fire up your, your app on your phone that has your Bible or, or uh, you, know, you can look up on the screen or you can pull out, you know, go old school, pull out a, a real Bible and uh, turn there if you have that to the book of Philippians. One of the things I want you to know about this book is it's written by a man named Paul. Now, Paul was a church planter. Paul was a missionary. Uh, Paul was an evangelist. Paul at one point was also a Jew, and he has this encounter with the risen uh, Savior Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, and he converts to Christianity, and now he becomes uh, this, this preacher, church-planting missionary who travels around. And one of the churches that he plants is a church in a city called Philippi. Turn to your neighbor and say, Philippi. Philippi. Yeah, Philippi. Turn to your other neighbor and say, Philippi. Philippi. It's kind of making you hungry, isn't it? Philippi. Okay, uh, anyway, sorry. Anyway, and uh, yeah, so, so this church that he plants in Philippi, it's really interesting because the way that Paul would go about planting churches was unique because he was formerly a Jew, accepted Jesus Christ, now labeled as a Christian, a follower of Jesus. What, what he would do is he would walk into a city and he would first go to a synagogue. This was Jewish roots, his Jewish history. He'd want to teach the gospel to people who were Jews first. So he would go into a synagogue and he would preach Jesus. And then he would leave that synagogue and he would go into the city square or he would talk in some open place to people who, who weren't Jews. But the thing about Philippi is that there was no synagogue. And in fact, they actually hated Jews. And so Paul enters into the city without a synagogue. And he's a little bit, you know, disheveled, to be honest with you, discombobulated a little bit because he's like, well, I usually go to the synagogue, um, but he doesn't in this case. So he starts walking along this river in Philippi, and he meets this woman named Lydia, and he leads her to Jesus. And you can read all about this in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, this, this, this church started in Philippi. But anyway, um, he plants a church filled with people that he personally led to Jesus Christ. Pretty cool story. But now he's writing them a letter. And this book, the book of Philippians, is a letter written by Paul to the church in Philippi. These are his friends. These are his family. Right? These are people that he was personally invested in. And the funny thing is, is that he's writing this letter to them from jail. He's been arrested because he's been preaching the gospel. He's been arrested because he's been converting people to Christianity, telling them about Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah that the Jews have been prophesying about for thousands of years, right? And so he's in jail. And what's funny about that is that Philippians is a book with the overarching theme. The main theme, the central theme of this book is joy. And it's funny because it's a book about joy written in prison. Now, I don't know about you. Um, I don't know what you think about when you hear the word joy. But uh, this morning I woke up <clears throat> and I try to get up a little bit earlier on a Sunday morning, spend a little bit of extra time in prayer and and uh, obviously read over my sermon. 
and um, just kind of prepare for the day. And, and so I'm up before my family, and that's, you know, I do all that stuff, and, and then my family wakes up, and we have breakfast and all that kind of good stuff together. And so I'm getting dressed, and I'm in the final stages of that. I'm about to leave, and I go to put my shoes on, and, and I've been praying all morning, you know, this entire week, God, I want to be a person filled with joy. We want to be at a church that's, that's filled with people, filled with joy, you know. And so that's where my heart is. That's where my focus is this morning, right? Had a great time in the Word. Had a great time in prayer. Had a great breakfast with my family. And I'm putting on my shoes. I put on my right shoe, and it's all good, you know. I put on my left shoe, and something else is sharing that space with me. And it's soft, and it's gushy. And I, and I actually have the thought, like, I don't want to know what that is. I'm not going to take my shoe off. Like, that literally went through my mind for a second. But, of course, I, that's not an option. So I pulled off my shoe, and inside of there, somebody had left me a present of a banana. <laughs> somebody had placed a banana in my shoe. Now, this would be a kind gesture um, if it was, um, you know, a banana that was still in its peel. Um, this even might have been a kind gesture if it was wrapped in a napkin and placed in there delicately. But this was neither one of those. This was a banana that had been sitting there for probably a week and a half that was half eaten and looked like it was regurgitated into my shoe. So I, I'm like, God, you're starting me out great, really getting filled with joy here. This is great. Got bananas on my socks, bananas in my shoe, right? And so I walk out into the living room. My family is casually dining on cinnamon rolls. And uh, I'm hobbling in, hence the banana foot. And, uh, and I said, hey, who put a banana in my shoe? Right? Did someone in here put a banana in my shoe? And Judah looked up at me and goes, uh-huh. <laughs> like he was proud of that. Like, oh, dad got my present. Yeah. Right? Awesome. <laughs> and, I, and it was so cute that I couldn't get mad. You know what I mean? I slapped him anyway. But it was just... It was just too cute. Well, I don't know what you think about when you think about joy. For me, growing up in a church, my dad's a pastor. I reference it often, church kid. Um, you know, there were a couple really intense theological joy songs that we used to sing growing up. Um, uh, one of them was this song, uh, and if you're a church kid, you'll probably recognize this. Um, if not, just kind of hang tight. But it goes, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. And then if you were... If you were a Christian, you would respond. It was a call and response type song. Because I would say, you've got the joy, 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 joy down in your heart. And then you would respond by saying, Where? Exactly. Wow. Down in my heart. Where? We do this all day. <laughs> down in my heart. Don't do it again. Yeah, you see, you know. And we sing this song, Down in my heart to stay. And then if you were um, really like, if you were like really a Christian, you know what I'm talking about? Like if you were like, top level, top notch, level five Christian, you knew the second verse, which was like, and if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack. And then you would say, ouch. Yeah, you say, ouch. You're like, you would be Satan in that moment, right? Like, this is great theology to teach children. If the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack. Ouch, because that's how Satan sounds when he sits on tax. And Ephesians 6, just wipe that whole book out talking about spiritual armor. All you need is a pack of, of, of you know, tacks for Satan to sit down on. And he's, ow, you know. It's like, okay. Um, another song that we had growing up, this is, this is I, I, I still love this to this day, was a song called Joy Bells. Anybody, anybody heard the song Joy Bells? Yeah, exactly. Now, let me, hear, let me tell you about this. In our, in our church growing up, pretty traditional conservative church, we had these things called 
hymns. Okay? And these hymns were these songs that we would sing that had 19 verses to each song, right? And you would have to sing them all or you would lose your salvation. So literally like all of them had to be sung in perfect order, right? Like don't skip ahead and all the guys were trying to sing harmony and all the women, yeah. And so we would have this thing at our church where um, it was called a hymn sing, once in a great while, right? And this would, be like a, this would be like a thing where we'd all get together as a church on a Sunday night, we'd have a big hymn sing. And, and so the worship pastor, well, he wasn't called a worship pastor, he was called a choir director or a chorale leader, right? If you're, yeah, okay. Um, yeah. And uh, he would stand up, he'd actually conduct everyone while you were singing, right? And the organist is over here, and she's playing, like she's going to town with her feet, you know what I'm saying? And, and uh, just playing. And uh, she's 133, and she's just going to town. She can boogie. And uh, so my favorite part of the hymn sing, though, was at the end, when the chorale director, organ instructing leader guy would say, does, anyone, does anybody have a song they'd like to sing? And this was basically the best day of my life. Because I would go through, and I would find the most obscure songs that just no one had ever heard, no one could possibly know, and I would raise my hand, and I would make eye contact with him, and I knew that he had to call on me because my dad was his boss. <laughs> right? And he'd call me and say, yes, Travis. I'd be like, page number, whatever it was, 384, 517, and he'd turn there and be like, okay, uh, we good over there? Let's all stand together and sing joy bells like nobody knew that song and it was one of my favorite things because people would be standing up they'd be reading and keep in mind there's six verses to the song that nobody knows the organist is like fumbling around and the guy's over here doing this and i'm just standing just smiling because it's just awesome right it's joy bells ring funny enough last worship experience i had a woman come up to me and she said you know that's really funny i used to be in a group um like a quartet called the joy bells and we sang that song and i was like Wow, that is crazy. Like, we have a kindred spirit. Anyway, joy bells, joy, joy, joy. This Philippians letter the church, uh, to the church of Philippi is all about joy. It's the overarching theme. It's the, it's the main thrust of, of this passage. And I want you to join with me in uh, looking at chapter 1, starting in verse 3. We're going to read here. Written from Paul, sitting in jail. This is what he says. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Pause real quick. Already we see that this guy is filled with joy, sitting in prison, writing a letter. And he uses this word partnership. And he says partnership in the gospel. This word is better um, read in the Greek, which is koinonia. Turn to your neighbor and say koinonia. Turn to your other neighbor and say, Cornania. This word means fellowship. Uh, it means togetherness. But the, the, the best translation for it, more than partnership, is unity. And so Paul is saying, I have joy when I think about you. I have joy when I think about the unity that we have as a church based in the gospel of Jesus Christ. From the first day we had it till now. He says this in verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's a good verse, amen? It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, 
both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He's filled with joy thinking about his church. He's been beaten. He's been whipped. He's in chains. He's in jail. He's at risk of being executed. And the one main thing on his mind is joy and the unity that he misses from being around the people of God, his church. That's what's on his mind. It's amazing. Let's keep going. Verse 12 says this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that, may, that, my, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of, the, out of their selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Three things on Paul's mind while he's sitting there bleeding, rotting away in, in jail. Number one is joy. Number two is his church. And number three is the gospel. Number one, joy. Two, his church and the unity there. And three, the gospel. Now, I've heard it said that Philippians is a happy book, right? Oh, yeah, Philippians. You're doing, somebody said that to me the other day. Oh, you're doing a series through Philippians. That's a really happy book. And I, and, I, and I just wanted to say, like, I could not disagree more. Philippians is not a book about happiness. Um, Paul was not happy when he wrote this letter, right? He's bruised. He's beaten. He might die the next day, right? This book is not about happiness. This is a book about joy. Amen? Amen? This is a book about joy. But as a nation, as Americans, we are quite literally consumed with happiness, aren't we? We are consumed with happy, happiness. We write songs about being happy. We say, do what makes you happy, right? Whatever it is, just, hey, pursue it, go, do what makes you happy. We even put it in our Declaration of Independence, like from the very beginning. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness but here's the problem here's the problem church in all of our trying to attain happiness in all of our trying to buy happiness in all of our trying to pursue happiness happiness remains elusive happiness remains fleeting people get married because they think that'll make them happy oh we're not happy now what does she want to get married let's get married maybe that'll make her happy then they get married and they find out they're less happy than they were before. Because now they've got to see each other all the time. Right? And as soon as the happiness is gone, so is the marriage. People purchase things they can't afford with credit cards they shouldn't have because they think it'll make them feel happy. And here's the trick. It does until they get the bill. Then sadness, sorrow, and dismay all press in and take away the happiness and yet we see Paul sitting in a jail cell, writing and praying with joy. 
how is this possible? How is it that the more he's beaten, the more he's flogged and whipped, the more he's, the more he's at risk of losing his life, the more uh, he's placed in jail, the more joy he seems to have? What's up with this guy? Now, let me ask you a simple question. Is Paul happy? No. Like, not at all. Dude's been shipwrecked multiple times, left out in the ocean like multiple times. He's been bitten by snakes. He's been chased by armies. He's been beaten, flogged, whipped. People tried to stone him. All these things. He's not happy. In fact, if you continue reading in Philippians, Paul says this. He's like, gosh, I'm, I'm really kind of struggling because I want to die. That's what he says. And you're like, oh, Paul's a very happy individual. No, he's not. He wants to die. He says, I, I, I struggle because I want to die. Because that will mean I'm with Jesus. But if I'm here, it's better because that will mean I'm remaining for you and to teach you and preach about the gospel and see it further throughout our generation. But I'm not quite sure what's going to happen yet, guys. Paul is not necessarily a happy individual. However, he is a man that is filled with joy. How is this? How is this? If you're taking notes, I would, I would press you to write this down. I would say this, because while happiness is based on a feeling, joy is based on Jesus. While happiness is based on a feeling, joy is based on Jesus. I didn't like that reaction, so I'm going to say it a different way. Happiness is based on your current condition, while joy is based on your eternal position. Is that better? Happiness is based on your current condition, condition while joy is based on your eternal position. And Paul's positioning is in Jesus Christ. He is rooted in the foundation of our risen Lord, Jesus Christ. And this is why even in such a face of adversity, he can say, I have joy. I'm thinking about my church. I'm thinking about my friends. I'm thinking about my God. I'm thinking about the gospel. Why? Because I have joy. We can have joy in the face of adversity. And maybe you might say, well, okay, 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 okay. That makes sense over there, but, but listen, Travis, listen. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what's going on in my life. You don't know what my wife's done. You don't know what my husband's done. You don't know whatever it might be. And this is true. I don't. But I would ask you this question. Has Jesus Christ left you? Has God forsaken you? Has the Holy Spirit packed up his bags and left from living inside of you? You know, as a Christian, we really should have incredible courage and confidence because this world cannot touch us. Paul says this. He says, to die is fine. To live is fine. You want to take my life? Fine. I'll be with Jesus. You want to let me live? Fine, I'll preach the gospel. You want to stick me in jail? Fine, I'll send some letters. I'll plant some churches the moment you let me out of here. But you cannot touch me. This is a man who is fueled by joy. Sometimes when we think about joy, we think about some kind of fruity, kind of like, oh, I don't, I don't even know. I don't even, I don't even know. I don't, I don't even know. We just think, that, that dude is filled with a little too much joy, if you know what I'm talking about, right? No, joy is not this, this flowery, fragrant, like happiness dance around a meadow. Joy means courage. Joy means strength. 
Joy means conviction. Joy means you have linked your foundation with the eternal God who created the universe. That's where our joy comes from. 100%. So you can stand up in the face of adversity. You can stand up and look down challenges. You can stand up to your enemies and say, no matter what you do to me, no matter what you put me through, you can throw me in jail, you can nail me to a cross, but you cannot take away where my joy is rooted because it's not of this world, it's of Jesus Christ. And I wonder... I just had to get that out. I wonder, I wonder if that's how we react to adversity. You know, do I have to remind you, brother, sister, in Christ, that your joy should not necessarily come from this world? Uh, the other day, my daughter Stella, she stubbed her toe or injured herself somehow, I don't know. And she ran to the room and, you know, she ran over to my wife and she's like, oh, it's, it's killing me. I'm dying, you know, and this hurts so bad, you know. And, and, and she made this, she said this phrase. She said, this is just never going to stop. It's going to hurt forever, right? And I went over to her, grabbed her, and I was like, hey, honey, just hang in there. It's going to go away. I know it hurts. I know it hurts. And she cried and then eventually just, you know, went away. And it made me think, is that how we come across to God? Do we get so caught up in our situations and circumstances and we run to God and we're like, this is just never going to stop. Look at what I'm going through. This is so hard. This hurts. This aches. This is pain. And God's just like, just, hey, I know it hurts. But listen, like, listen, there's a lot. There's a lot more going on than you realize. And your hope is linked to Jesus and eternity. This is not eternity. This place is not your home. And I would say that to you. Listen to me, brother and sister in Christ. No matter what you're going through, this place is not your home. No matter who our president is, no matter who the next president is, no matter what they figure out with health care, this place is not your home. Ain't no health care in heaven. No one's getting sick. God's got the ultimate health care pro uh, you know, proposition. I'll just take away sickness. Good enough, right? And so need I remind you, that our home is, is, is in heaven. Our home is in heaven where, where there is no sickness, where there is no death, where there is no night, where there is no hurt, where there is no pain, where there is only God and worshiping Him and the fullness of Jesus Christ and being, being a people who are filled with the mind of Christ and the presence with Christ. That's where our hope is. That's where our joy is found. Apart from that, we have a Savior who lived and died and rose again so that you could know freedom, so that you could know hope, so that you could know joy. Joy. And joy is understood when you understand that your sins have been forgiven. They're no longer counted against you, that Jesus died for them. They're covered. Your guilt, your shame, your trash, your crap has now been taken and forgiven and forgotten. And if that does not bring you joy, then you do not know Jesus Christ. Paul speaks as a man who's been set free by joy. This is why Paul gives thanks to God for his imprisonment in the first place. Because he says it's furthering the gospel. Paul's cra he's crazy. God, thanks for putting me in jail. I'm really getting to lead a lot of people to Jesus in here. Kind of close quarters, right? Crazy. Crazy. And it wasn't only Paul that had this joy, but notice that he talks about his church having this joy as well. I wonder, I wonder, if Paul were alive today, or maybe it would be more rightly said, if we were alive in Paul's day, 
The covenant was the church of Philippi, right? Would Paul remember us with fondness? Would Paul remember us with joy? Would he remember us as a church filled with unity? Would he long to see us? Would he commend us? Would we be a church that stood with him through thick and thin as his church did? I want to say yes. I want to say, yeah, of course. But the fact of the matter um, is this. The church that Paul is talking about is a church filled with joy. And to be a church filled with joy, we must be a people filled with joy. Does that describe our church? Are we a people filled with joy? Because i got, I got to be just really, really honest with you. Um, Christians who should be the best at this are the worst at this. Yeah? You agree with me? Christians who should be the best at this joy thing are the worst at this. Have you ever noticed this? Christians are some of the meanest people I've ever met in my whole life. That's a, you don't know whether amen or not. You don't, you're like, ah, I'm like, in, like, I don't know what's going on, right? I'm in limbo. That's me, but it's not. What, what, what? you know? Um, I remember <laughs> in fourth grade, I had this uh, Sunday school teacher who was the meanest person I've ever met in my whole life. Uh, he was gigantically tall. He was incredibly old. And um, to me, you know, I was a fourth grader. And he was incredibly mean. And his demeanor was incredibly horrible. Like a death eater. I mean, I'm just serious. He's dead now, but I mean, <laughs> he is. He, he knows Jesus. He's in heaven. It's fine. He knows this is coming. Jesus already told him, all right? I'm not saying anything that Jesus didn't tell him already. And, uh, I remember, I remember sitting in class at church in fourth grade, and he would walk in, and he would say, Oh, you kids, this is a, it's a class full of boys, okay? Oh, you kids, close your mouths and sit down. This isn't fun. This is church. That's what you say. Like, oh, okay. You know what I mean? Uh, really took the fun out of church. You know what I mean? And I remember specifically one Sunday where he opened the Bible, and we're sitting there paralyzed in fear as he's reading from his dark eyes. Right? He opens the Bible, right? And we're just like, you know, just sitting there like, what's he going to say, you know? And, and he says, all right, the Bible says that you're to love one another. I don't see a lot of you loving on each other. That's a problem. You need to shape up, boys. Like that. We're like, ah. Oh. And, and it hit me as strange in the moment because I'm like, wow, he's, he's telling me to love people, but I'm pretty sure that he wants to kill me. I'm pretty sure, like, I'm going to walk out and I'm going to get, like, an axe in my back. At some point, you know, as a fourth grader, Christians are a mean people. We're just, we're just mean people. We're awful. And, and before you start thinking of, of, of other people who are mean, right? Before you're like, amen, I know that person right there. Been married 10 years. Let me, uh, let me ask you this question. <laughs> I didn't do you any favors right there. Before you start naming names, let me ask you this question. When is the last time you built up this church and its leadership? When is the last time you stood with somebody, a brother and sister in Christ, through a difficult time? When is the last time you gave somebody a, a gift or a note, wrote them a simple note of encouragement? When was the last time you, you prayed for your See life leader. When? See, a lack of encouragement might as well be discouragement. 
a lack of encouragement might as well be discouragement. As Christians, we should be the most encouraging people on the face of the earth because our joy is connected to an eternal God named Jesus Christ who died to set us free. We have no reason to not be encouraging to one another. But when it comes down to it, when it comes to joy, as Christians, this is an area where we just suck. We do. We do. And this is why so many people who come to church never come back. Because churches aren't filled with people of joy oftentimes. Most times, churches are filled with vampires. That's why they suck. Right? You know what a vampire is, right? I consider myself a little bit of a, a vampire aficionado. I've seen uh, most of the Twilight movies. I've, uh, I, uh, I watched a cartoon once with a vampire in it. Um, but you know what a vampire is, right? You ever been around one? You ever been around a vampire before? A vampire is a person with the desire to suck the life out of every conversation. A vampire is, the, is a person who has the desire to suck the joy out of every relationship. To suck the energy out of every room. I preached this morning. Is that, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Vampires make it hard for a sea life group to be of any value because as soon as somebody starts talking about their spiritual breakthrough, they're there to bring them on down and suck the life out of the room. A vampire makes it very difficult for a worship pastor to do his job because while everyone else is raising their hands and singing to Jesus Christ and talking about the goodness and the fullness that is God, they're sitting there with their arms crossed, mouths closed, getting ready to fold up and tuck into their coffin for a nice day's rest. A vampire makes it very difficult for, oftentimes, for a pastor to preach. And here's the truth. I mean, sometimes I look out um, at you all, and, uh, and, and sometimes I just, I just see fangs. You know what I mean? Like just dead, cold stares. And I have to think, like, what's up with that? <laughs> what's going on with that? Aren't we just supposed to be a people filled with joy? And it's strange to me sometimes as a communicator, as a pastor, as somebody who feels like they're trying to convey God's word and present something of worth, and, and you feel like you've been convicted by the Holy Spirit to say something very specific, and you say that and people don't respond. I don't want anybody to respond with a false sense of, of, uh, of anything. But there should be response when we hear about the promises of Jesus Christ. Amen? I understand some of you were brought up in backgrounds where you weren't allowed to even, like, click your fingers in church. I get that. I understand that some of you weren't allowed to clap in church. I understand this is for, the, for some of you ladies. This is the first time you didn't show up to church in a dress. You got pants on. You've been kicked out of church in some of your churches. Right? I get that. I'm just saying, that's the old Jew. And the new you responds to the gospel and the Bible with excitement when it's preached and taught. Whether it's through some type, of a, some type of a little drama that our children will put on, we respond to that because it's the gospel. Whether it's through singing the songs that, that we sing about Jesus and the fullness, we respond to that because it's the gospel. Or, whether it's, or, or even if it's reading the word and, and preaching and teaching, we respond to it. But rather too often we suck the life out of a room. Suck it out. And now I would say this too. We, we even have, that's not bad enough, we even have like virtual vampires. You know what I'm talking about? 
Get on Facebook. Get on social media. People just suck the life right out of you. Even before you, like, get out of the house. You wake up and roll over and flip on your phone and first status update. Well, this confirms it. I hate my life. Oh, okay, let me scroll down a little more, right? <laughs> scroll down. Well, I definitely hate my parents. I definitely don't want to live here, you know. Okay, wow, really should have thought about having, you know, not having kids. I hate these things. You know what I mean? It's like, whoa, stop updating your status, honey. I mean, it's like, stop, you know. Twitter and Facebook and all these things. And then, you, and then it's so funny because you'll see an incredible uh, pastor or, or an incredible uh, communicator or even somebody with an incredible story about the gospel and freedom on YouTube or something. And then you scroll down the list, and of, of course, what? There's virtual vampires. This guy's a hypocrite. This guy's a jerk. What a punk. That was awful. What? It's a virtual vampire. It's so crazy, too, because you actually friend those people. You, you friend them. You actually friend people from high school that you know are vampires. Maybe they changed. They haven't changed. They still suck. Okay? <laughs> Defriend them. Do not friend them. They bring you down. And that is a strategic plan from our enemy to rob you of your joy. We cannot be a people who are robbed of our joy. To be honest with you, here, here's maybe the deeper thing. Maybe you've been bitten yourself. You've been bitten by a vampire. Because, you know, the only way a vampire can be satisfied is by sucking the blood out of someone else. I mean, that's the entire reason for the existence of a vampire, to make more vampires. That's what they do. They go around biting people, sucking the life out of them. They, they become vampires, and they go, and they multiply. Vampires multiply. Place to place to place to place to place. They create more vampires. Here's a few signs of, uh, that might point or indicate to you the fact that you've been bitten. Number one, you've lost your joy. Have you lost your joy? When, was the, when, when you first came to Christ, the world was open and the possibilities in Jesus were endless. But now over time, you have just found your place. Just gotten in line. It's more of a ritual than a worship experience or a personal relationship. You've lost your joy. Number two, maybe you've been bitten. You're in a weakened state spiritually. What, what once used to be an incredible relationship that you looked forward to has now become a burden. Once you used to read Scripture and, and there used to be power in it for you in the, in the sense that you would walk away feeling changed and feeling new, but now you don't even have the energy to even read the Bible or even pray. You know, we can say state spiritually. Number three, and this one is, I think, rings very, very true. Clear indicator. You've been bitten if you find yourself becoming bitter and hardened to people who are filled with joy. You find yourself becoming bitter and hardened to people that are filled with joy. You start getting mad at people when they exhibit signs of joy. Like for no reason, right? Like a husband and a wife, you'll see them out. You're with your wife or whatever, and you're both vampires. And uh, you see them, these people walking in front of you, and they seem happy, and then they hold hands. And you don't say, like, oh, that's great. You start saying, like, hypocrites. Look at that jerk. What's wrong with him? Look at them acting like they're not that happy. Did you see that? Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, did you see her shirt? Yeah, her shirt's ugly, too. <laughs> right? See his legs? His legs nasty. Right? You know what I'm saying? You talking about? We start hating on people because they have the joy of Jesus in them. 
clear indicator that you have been bitten and that you are a vampire. As a church, we, we want to be led by the Spirit and built by Jesus Christ. As a church, we want to be a people filled with joy, but we can't allow vampires in our seats. We cannot. I, I thought about, um, you know, we have these big flags out front um, next to the road that say Covenant Church, and you know, they kind of fly and catch people's attention, hopefully. I thought about getting one printed up for like just today that said like, Covenant Church, no vampires allowed. And then I thought, like, that would be really weird. <laughs> you know, like, people would be like, what? Were they allowed before? Like, what's going on in that theater? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Have they had an influx of vampires? Like, what's going on, right? <laughs> but no, the fact of the matter is we can't allow vampires in our seats. No vampires allow. We don't allow bitterness. We don't allow vampires to fill our seats. But rather, we must be a church filled with vampire slayers. Vampire slayers need to be occupying these seats. You understand that? Each one of us is called to be a vampire. And I would say this. The slaying must begin with ourselves. You know what's difficult about this is I'm reading through this and, and, and all of a sudden I'm like, you know what? That's me. I, I'm a vampire oftentimes. I, I, I get upset with people sometimes when they have something that happens to them that doesn't happen to me, and I feel more justified in getting what they have than they have it, right? A vampire in that moment. When I, when I don't have a, a day that's going well and I see somebody that does, I get upset in that moment. I'm a vampire. And I realize that the person that sucks the most is me. Me. Each one of us. No sucker-free Sunday up in here. You all suck. In fact, turn to your neighbor and just look at him and be like, you suck. Look at the other person and be like, yeah, well, I know, we all suck. I mean, seriously, you suck, you suck, you suck. You all, we all do. We all, at different points of our life, we do. But here's the point. We must become vampire slayers even if the vampire that we have to slay is ourself. In Ephesians chapter 4, he gives us very specific uh, instructions on how to slay this vampire. Ephesians 4, 22, he says this. This is, this is money right here. My dad used to say all the time, son, this is money. That means it's good, right? It's gold. Here it is. Ephesians 4, 22. Put off your old self. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the fact that Scripture says when you come to Jesus, you're made new. You're a new creation. Old things have passed away. Scripture says that before Jesus, pre-Jesus, pre your encounter with Jesus, you were dead. You're dead. And now that you know Jesus, you've been made alive. You've been made alive in Jesus Christ. And so what we do is we're like silence of the lambs in it, right? We walk over and we pick up old flesh that's not ours and stick it to our face and walk around. No wonder people be looking at you weird. You're wearing somebody else's flesh. You're a freak. Paul's saying, put away that dead stuff, man. Put off the old self. Put it away. It belongs to your former manner of life. It's corrupt through deceitful desires. But rather, he says this, be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the what? New self. 
Put off the old self. Put on the new self. Created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And then he gets specific. And here's where it starts to, ah, here's where it starts to hurt. He says, therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. There's a whole message. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. There's a whole other message. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Read that again. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. One more time for emphasis. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Scripture says that life and death are held in your tongue. And when you speak, you have the power to give life or to take it away. It says, who can control the tongue? It is mighty. It is powerful. It's like the rudder of a boat. It's like a wild beast that you try to tame. It's got fire in it. You just thought that you were spitting out some, some game, you know? You just thought that you were spitting out something, a little observation about how that girl doesn't look as good as she used to. You're speaking death. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up and fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, what's that word? Bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. How do you defeat a vampire? Well, it must be, you know this, it's got to be brought into the light. How do you defeat it? You drag that thing into the light of empire, must have a true encounter with Jesus Christ. At that point in time, they must decide, am I going to put off the old me and become the new me? Am I going to walk around with death attached to me? Or am I going to live in this new creation that God has made for me? And a vampire must put off its old self. Paul says in verse 21, put off your old self. It belongs to your former manner of life. It's not, it's not for you anymore. This means, quite simply, eliminate bitterness. One of many things. But he mentions this very strongly. It says, eliminate bitterness. And how do we eliminate bitterness? Through forgiveness. Forgiveness is the stake that slays the vampire. Forgiveness is the stake through the heart of a vampire. Listen, I'm not, I'm not saying that what you're going through isn't difficult. I'm not saying that you weren't burned by a church. I'm not saying that you weren't hurt by somebody. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that you cannot continue to be a dead person and be a living person at the same time. By definition, that is stupid. That is ridiculous. You're either alive or you're dead. You want to live somewhere in between, you vampire. It's, it's one or the other. And bitterness is a sign of death. Forgiveness is a sign of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit cannot coincide and live inside of you with bitterness. One is going to win out. I'm not saying we're not bitter every once in a while. I understand that. I'm just saying, like, at some point, if you're not convicted and give that over, like, that bitterness is the spirit inside of you, not the Holy Spirit, not God the Father. You, are you tracking with me? And we must forgive, and that is hard. You must track back when you were first bitten. You must track back to who drew first blood on your spiritual neck. And you must forgive them. 
Well, you don't know what they did. You don't, you don't know how they hurt you. You're right, I don't. But I do know that Jesus Christ forgave you. And if Jesus Christ has forgiven you of all that you've done, how could you not forgive them? How? Each one of us called to be vampire slayers through forgiveness. Forgiveness. Who bit you? Who made you the vampire? It's time to go back and slay that vampire with the stake of forgiveness. And it will bring you joy. Thank you for listening to this message from a recent sermon at Covenant Church. We hope that you've been encouraged by what you've heard today. For more information on what's happening at Covenant, you can find us at covenantchurch.us. Or if you need prayer or you'd like to tell us your story, you can reach out to us at mystory at covenantchurch.us.